Bridging the Gap. I'm your host, S.E.T., and I hope that you're doing well wherever you're listening from. So on this show, I interview artists and creative individuals going on deep dives into their processes and asking them questions about their journeys from start to where they are now. And when I think of my guest today, the first word that comes to mind is multi-hyphenate. She is a poet, a performer, a playwright, an educator, a filmmaker, and so much more. I'm also really happy to say that she's a dear friend of mine. So today I am joined by the one and only Lanaire Aderemi. Welcome to Bridging the Gap. Thank you so much for having me, Shemfumi, and for the lovely introduction. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. No, I'm excited to have you here. Um, you've been someone that I've had the privilege of watching from like the very beginning of their creative career. So it's been amazing to sort of see how you have grown and developed in this space. And I'm really excited to just talk about your journey so far. Yeah, I'm really excited as well. And I think the same the same thing goes for you, just being able to witness your own journey since we're in secondary school has been really, really surreal. Yeah, way, way back, actually. It's crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's amazing. Um, and where I kind of wanted us to start today is actually with your mom. So I know she's sort of been a very central figure in your life, of course, but also in your work. And I wanted to talk about your early years and how you sort of started like developing your artistic creativity and like the role that she played in that. Yeah, um, yeah my mom is a big inspiration. So when I was younger, or when I was young, um, my mom always encouraged my sister and I to read widely and to write. And so um, during the summers, we would maybe, for instance, travel for a holiday and she'd say to us, write about your holiday and then present it to your grandparents, almost as though, you know, I was given a performance. And it was interesting because I think that looking back, that experience was essentially rehearsal time that I was gaining um, for many, many years. And alongside that, my mom, would buy my sister and I journals and she was such a big believer in documenting things so she would say things like um for you to remember something you have to write it down even as far as if we wanted to have something for like a birthday present she'd be like write this down and let me know and so there's been a big I guess documenting culture in my family and um, my mom definitely played a huge role in, in that and so when I was young she would um, tell my sister and I bedtime stories. I remember the story, a story she told us about um, a chicken who turned into a biscuit. Um, and the story was a fable so that my sister and I would stop eating too much Maryland cookies. She was just super, super <laughs> creative with the way she would share these stories. Um, so yeah, it really, really formed the foundation of my own creativity. And um, I think the school I went to was also just super conducive of that. We were allowed to express ourselves in many, many ways, and through dance, through song, poetry, um, you know, de- debates. And that was also as a result of, you know, my mom making a decision with my dad, you know, to take us to that school. And so 
yeah she's played a huge role in my life and i think she's one of the greatest storytellers that i i know um so yeah i'm, I'm really really grateful for her no that's so amazing because we're going to touch upon some of the other things that you mentioned but it's really cool to see how like the seeds for your practice were kind of sown without you realizing exactly no it was and anytime i maybe i'm going through a tough time with my my work i always do this thing where i sit down and i say to myself there are so many clues in my childhood and there are clues of creativity of innovation of um, being inquisitive and these clues not have not just allowed me to be where i am today but it always reminds me that i have such a great destiny ahead of me and yeah i just think that i mean not everybody has had the best of childhoods and i recognize that um, but in my own case, my childhood was a real fertile ground for creative expression and um, pushing my own boundary of storytelling because I was essentially allowed and encouraged to do every single thing, no matter how bad I was at it. Like, I can't dance, but in school, we're always told participate in this dance uh, performance. Or I couldn't sing, but I was given the role of Mary in a, in a school play and I had to sing. And so... I have no shame, um, honestly, when it comes to creativity. And I know that's a, as a result of um, being exposed to various art forms and not being punished for being average at art forms that I maybe didn't come so natural to me. Yeah, I think it's very important. What I'm getting is like it's very important to let children just sort of express themselves and figure out the modes that work best for them. Just, you know giving someone the space to be themselves and discover what they really enjoy, especially in a creative context. And I think it's amazing, especially from like a Nigerian background where so many people have like parents that force them into certain types of careers or don't really see the value in creativity. And I think it's amazing that your parents saw that value and really tried to nurture it from a young age. Yeah. Um, my mom was, yeah, definitely encouraging. And I think also maybe for her, she saw it as a a good release. Because I remember I had a WordPress blog that, you know, you also had as well. I remember so many of our Twitter friends had. And in those days, I would rush to the ICT room in my school, um, well, in school. And, you know, when I'd have classes, I would secretly have my Twitter open so I could post my WordPress blog. And it was just so crazy how that sort of microblogging culture um, was as a result of teenagers trying to express their pain, their joy, and, and to document that so openly. And I think that also gave me confidence. Um, but again, those WordPress blog posts wouldn't have existed if not for my mom's um, encouragement of my writing and telling me that essentially that um writing was a way to memo memo hey (laughs) writing (laughs) writing was a way that's why you shouldn't use big words (laughs) 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 writing was a way to memorialize um my past my present and my future yes um yeah Okay, so you mentioned the WordPress days, which is really like, you know, a blast from the past because I feel like those were, that was like another really fertile ground for just people practicing like creativity and like creative expression. So when did you start viewing yourself 
less as just like a creative person and more like a focused artist? I definitely think this was in A-levels um, and that was probably because I was away from sort of like the things that were most familiar to me. So I didn't have close friends that were around me. My parents were in, in Lagos. Um, and so I really had to cultivate an independent spirit. And I remember um, realizing how much of a necessity art was for me. It wasn't even an option when in A-levels, um, I would do this thing where I essentially curated spaces for me to perform poetry. So I wasn't waiting for people to give me opportunities. And I remember I was in an all-white um, area called Letchworth Garden City in Hertfordshire. And um, my school was also basically all-white. And I essentially met this amazing um, shop owner, or well, gallery owner. And I said to her, I was like, I really, really want to have um, a performance in your space and she was just so encouraging of it and I think that was the first time I ever made a move related to my I, it wasn't even a career at the time but related to my art and um, I was so confident about it I, I didn't even think twice um, and the performance went so well um, I reached out to my friend Dean Caberni or that's his stage name who at the time was making music and doing so well in it and I said to him could you please create a um, sort of like musical score for me so that when I'm performing the poetry music is underscoring my words and again being able to make that decision very swiftly and then coming up with a performance in like two days because I had my A-level exams a few days before I think that's when I realized oh my goodness okay this thing is so serious this is not an option this is a necessity it's it's a way for me to survive, to process things in the world. Um, so I would say that, but I, I also think that I've always had that feeling in, in me. I remember it was my friend's mom's car. She was driving and she was asking all of us, what do you want to be? And someone said, I want to be a lawyer and a journalist. And I said, I want to be a writer. And everyone just started laughing. And they're like, is that actually possible? Like a writer, like what's the real job? And I was like, no, I actually really want to be a writer and that's what I'm doing now so I'm so happy about it but at the same time um, I know that it was a very risky thing to even conceive of and although my parents were supportive in terms of my gift um, I also would be dishonest to say that they were extremely supportive in terms of it as a career because um, up to results day I was supposed to study law and I decided that I was going to pursue you know, a degree in a different career path. So I ended up studying sociology. And that allowed me to then have time and space for my writing. And if not for that degree, I wouldn't have written in university at all. Um, so I guess I've just been grateful to be somebody that has never sat down um, when everyone is sitting. Like I'm just too, I, I just need to get things done. And if, if I don't get, the thing that is in my heart done I feel restless so I guess maybe that was what allowed me to to see it as a necessity for myself and then realize that this could possibly become a career but I have never actually used the word career even till date I, I struggle to to call something that is such that is inside of me it's like a gift a career because I guess when the idea of money um when it starts to I guess surround the thing that you're so passionate about it can so easily um, lose its joy and, and that's something that I, I'm so protective of like 
nothing can steal my joy and nothing can steal the joy that writing gives me or should steal the joy that writing gives me yeah yeah and i feel like that's such a beautiful approach to take to it because like you said once you start doing creative things on a career level there's so many other factors that come into play and it's very easy for that joy to get snuffed out essentially but you're someone that i've been able to see like has maintained sort of that joy and the love for creativity and the process throughout your work from start till date so it's it's been really great to see and i kind of want to dive a little deeper into process with you so going back to your first um collection of poems of ivory and ink um i still have my signed copy from you um and i just wanted to talk about the process of putting together a collection of poetry like that what what are the steps like for you from, I guess, the first poem to putting together an actual book? What does that sort of look like from like a high level view? I'm so happy that you still have that signed copy. I can't believe you. That is so crazy. Um, but in terms of the process for making that, um, so the poems were actually poems that I do- had documented for several years in my journal and on my WordPress blog. Um, and what had happened was my mom knew that I kept this blog religiously and said to me, Manary, why haven't you put this all together? Or rather, why don't you put this all together and um, make it into a book? So my mom is very business-minded. That's another thing about her. Very entrepreneurial in spirit. And she was like, you know, you can make so much money. You can, um, I guess, also have something to call yours. Um, again, I guess in the, in the sake or the name of, of um, archiving and legacy. And so I, she said to me, okay, put this, these poems together. And so what I did was I basically picked my favorite poems. There were some poems that I found so embarrassing, maybe because they were about boys, teen angst, sadness. And I was just like, okay, no, I'm not going to put some of these in. But then even just the process of picking the poems, I found them super fun because um, subconsciously I was then having to think about things like themes, so thematic arrangements of, of work and trying to think of a story, a very cohesive story for events that, happened over or across four years essentially so between 2012 or 2011 and 2015 and then um two years after i left secondary school so during my a-levels my mom said to me okay um no sorry before i left for my a-levels my mom had said that i couldn't leave for a-levels until i published a book um or that until i compiled all the poems together and so i called one of my friends dami ayovon who is a writer and photographer. And I said to him, I was like, Dami, I need some help with um, editing the, you know, the book. And then, wait, should I me there? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so I called my friend Dami Ayobon and I said, I need some help with editing the book. And he said to me, of course I could help you. And so he helped me edit some of the poems. In fact, basically all of the poems and then made corrections. And um, before I left, we already had like the first draft of the collection and then because of the recession in nigeria i think it was 2016 um it was really expensive to produce it so my mom said okay let's wait a few months and during that time because i had space from it i was able to really um i guess do some more revisions and um i then 
go back to Lagos 2017 and was it 2017 no 20 oh my goodness I'm mixing up dates because I definitely <laughs> had it for the lucid lemons I had it for the lucid lemons um yeah 2017 yeah because that's when I, I lost my Lagos. so I had it for the lucid lemons festival um lemon curd and so I then said I was going to buy a store and sold the books there and something I forgot to mention was to arrange the poems I basically read a um, post on Wiki, one of those Wiki blog sites that said that if you're struggling to decide on how to arrange anything, print out, or not print, write down the, the names of the, the titles essentially on paper and throw it in the air. And as they fall, that's the arrangement. <laughs> so that's how I did it. Sort of. Yeah, I threw it all in the air. And as it was falling, I was like, okay, this poem first, this poem first, this poem first. So it was really by chance. Um, so it was just so funny how, for some for some people, they said they really liked the arrangements and like it felt very cohesive. Meanwhile, it was all by chance. So yeah, it was just all vibes. But um, that was basically the process of it. And so I guess you can say that it was a process that took maybe five, six years. But um, in terms of like, and that's because of the poetry, because I was writing it across or throughout my whole secondary school time but yeah okay i got you so i think first of all that little bit about how you actually arrange the poems is hilarious to me because i find it cohesive but i think that's also uh, a facet of just like how your writing kind of works like your tone and style works across different poems regardless so i think there's an element of that as well um but i want to kind of move from this because you've always been a writer like at your core but now learning that there's always always been sort of those elements of performance even from your childhood is like spoken word is that something that you always plan to do and move into um i think i don't even i wouldn't say i planned on ever doing it because i don't think i even knew what spoken word was like i didn't know there was a a language for like i didn't know there was a word called spoken word essentially i just knew of poetry and that poetry could be performed it was only when a friend of mine who was really into like poetry slams would then say to me, oh, have you heard of this slam? And I'm like, oh, okay. But because I never really, I found slams fascinating, but I could never do it because I can't perform fast. So it was something that never really interested me. Not to say that spoken word is all fast, but I think a lot of what people enjoy about it is its proximity to rap and, but its slowness or like, it's both quick paced but also like mediative enough for you to enjoy it as poetry and people like that but my own work i found that i found like i wasn't getting clicks <laughs> that's basically what it was like i wasn't doing the whole everyone was like mm, ah, quick, quick, quick. <laughs> yeah like the and, bars yeah exactly so that was not my strength i just i mean the writing was i think good but i wasn't a punchline person and i think when i recognized that i then realized how can I make my voice more unique? And that was when the idea of introducing music to my work um, through humming, so creating collective sound, using people's voices as instruments, using my voice as an instrument um, came to mind. And so I remember in um, my Lucy Lemon's performance, I think I even asked the crowd to hum, or I might have had a band member on stage, um, not that he was, I had a band, but a guitarist who I met randomly, who then underscored my words with poetry. 
and then someone said to me oh my goodness you're a spoken word performer so again like i didn't know what that was i was just doing what came natural to me because i always say like performances for me are supposed to be fun if as a performer i'm not having fun then i'm not going to perform like i don't see the point of it because i think that the perform the performance space is a playground i always say that it's a playground and for me the way i think about my um performances is kind of me trying to pick whether i should go on a swing or a slide and so that could look like whether i should use audience interaction or stick to maybe a more quiet performance with no music whatsoever um so i'm constantly thinking about how i can be playful and be childlike um within my performances and i guess that came from um just a love for ex- basically knowing that what i have to say is important and I, and i just want people to hear it and spoken word just happened to be the most convenient vehicle for passing my message but i i didn't actually know it was it was called spoken word till maybe like 2017 or yeah or 2016 okay yeah that that makes sense then cuz i think for a lot of people they didn't really have the language to describe it but like you said yeah. there's sort of that awareness but I don't, of oh no keep going yeah but I also don't I don't like calling myself a spoken word performer. I really don't <laughs> like it. Um and I think and it's very I think also it's because of how much Twitter has trolled spoken word performers as well. Maybe that's also where it comes from. Although that was m- more recent. Like I remember during COVID times, saxophonist and spoken word poets got a lot of of heat for being corny. Um, yeah. And I understand that like it can actually be very corny and cringe. Um but at the same time i think i think corniness can be useful <laughs> i actually think it can be super useful um because again like children are super corny so there's something very like childlike about it um but at the same time i do not identify as a spoken word performer i'm just a writer or an artist and i think the reason for that is just because i do not like to be boxed i don't like anyone to say I mean, ironically, I'm saying I mean, writer and artist. So in some sense, maybe I am boxing myself. But those words, I think, allow for more space to move and to breathe. Whereas just saying I'm this, what if I wake up one day and I'm just like, I actually don't want to be this anymore. Then I'm stuck with that title for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, I don't like I don't like feeling like I'm stuck. So I think that's probably why I stay away from um, nouns like that. And then someone else came to me one day and said. Why would you call yourself a performer when you're when you're essentially like being yourself on the stage? So is it a performance? And I'm like, well, everybody's performing in our lives. Like we're all taking up roles, whether we're conscious of it or not. But anyways, that's another long conversation. <laughs> the world is a stage for sure. But this and actually then, is good because it's kind of leading into what I wanted to get into. Um, so you've had the elements of performance. You've had the elements of writing, but in terms of playwriting, is that something that you had an eye on or when did that, um, I guess, passion develop? Um, yeah, I've, I've always had an eye for it. So I, I acted throughout my secondary school and even up to A-levels, which a lot of people actually don't know. Um, but I, yeah, I'm just even remembering like, wow, that is so true. Yeah, I acted. Literally in every Christmas play, I was, I was always the main character as well. Um, and I would sing, I would have to dance. So I guess I was always observing 
um, or not observing, I was having to take up the role of an actor. And maybe subconsciously, I was, I guess, understanding what drama was and the conventions of theatre and all of those things, stage management, use of space. Um, and I also did a lot of debating, which is where I also met you, <laughs> interestingly. Um, and I think doing both debating and acting meant that I was always having to take up a role as a performer and having to be assertive and confident. Um, but then also, my parents were big theatre lovers, so we would always go to Masson to watch it play. And they had lots of friends who were theatre makers in Lagos. And so literally, like, every Christmas, Easter, we would always see a play. So I would watch a lot of, like, Bolani Austin Peters plays in terror culture, um, in in um, Masson as well. So, yeah, things like that. And then also in church, you know, I was I remember I was always so excited whenever they'd say there's a church play or there's a drama. I'd just be like, wow, this is so exciting. That was probably what I looked forward to. That and testimonies because those two were always so dramatic. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've always been... I've always had that culture around me, the culture of drama. And I guess also being in Nigeria, like, whether or not you, you want to be, you end up, like, reproducing some kind of drama from the chaos that is Nigeria. Um, and then, basically, like, around when I was, like, 17 or... Yeah, 17 or 16, um, my school, the school I was in for A-levels, they basically said to me, we'd love you to act as, like, the main character. And I was... I hadn't acted in a while, so I was very, very scared about it. But I really, really enjoyed it. And then studying um, Hamlet and a lot of plays in, in A-levels as well, it kind of, like, solidified my, my love for drama. But again, it wasn't something that I was like, I want to be a playwright. What then happened was in university, my first year of uni, um, I, we had, there was a strike that happened at uni, so um, staff went on strike. And a lot of students didn't have anything to do. And like I said to you, like, I'm someone that I just can't sit down for a long time. I'm just like, I need to do something. I need to express myself. And so I just woke up one day and I just remember in my journal, I told God, I was like, God, I just really want to write a play. And I don't know how to write a play. Let me, I just want to do it. And then I went to the library and I borrowed um, some books by some playwrights like Wale Shoinka, Amata, um, who else was there? Ungugi. And I just started studying them and reading their plays. And then I went back to my room and I remembered that there was a story that my grandmother had told me called the Egba Women's Revolt, which uh, many people didn't know about. So essentially it's a story about about 10,000 Nigerian women's um, successful overthrow of British colonial taxation in Abelkusa. And so I wrote a place loosely based on it and then addressed some other feminist issues like child marriage, FGM. Um, it was a very messy play in hindsight, but it did what it, meant to, it was meant to do in terms of allowing me to sort of test the waters. And the response was just so amazing. I mean, you were there and some of our friends were there as well. And 300 people came and it was a very, like the weather was so terrible that day. So I didn't think people would even show up. And I remember in that moment, like when I got a standing ovation and the cast were also my friends, the costume design team, set design, everybody, they're all my friends. When we all got that standing ovation, in that moment, I literally felt like I was in a Disney film. I was like, oh my goodness, 
you know when in Disney films like the character has this libel moment and it's like yeah. the music is so cinematic and it's like wow or the meme where it's like oh my god wow <laughs> <laughs> I was like this is what I'm meant to be doing man yeah so that was literally how the playwright I mean was birth. it was just through boredom really wow that's amazing because I think even for me like I did not have any familiarity really with the Egba market women protest and seeing your play was I mean just on like a personal level it was kind of amazing to see you put on an actual play but then it was also great because it really did serve the purpose of educating people about especially like young Nigerians about something that they just might not be aware about that's very important to like their history and to the foundation of how the country is today and when you were putting even just writing the play was that like a really big thing for you that that emphasis on documentation of this story and sort of resharing it for a new audience definitely definitely um so nigerian history has been it's something i've always been passionate about i remember in uni my first year, I was studying this module called War Memory and Society. And I I emailed the tutor to say, why is the Biafran War not in this module? This is literally one of the most largest genocidal wars in the whole world. And you're teaching a module about war, and there's nothing about the Biafran War. I literally thought it was such an insult. And um, he replied saying to me, I need to defend, make a presentation on this, share it with the class. And... A year later, I found out that he included it in the module forever. And I think knowing, realizing that made me realize how important it is to speak up. So I've always been a big believer in speak up and just just share your truth. And if, if they don't want to listen, they won't take up what you have to say. But I really believe in the power of seeds. Like seeds will eventually grow into plants, which will eventually become trees if God wants that plant to be a tree. And if not, it will be a nice flower. But either way, it still grows, right? And I think that for me, what it was was that I have always been a big believer in sharing um, truth and history is a way for me to, or rather sharing historical um, information is a way of raising consciousness. So when people say, why is Nigeria a failed state? Or why is Nigeria not working? I'm always like, we need to go back to our history. We can only chart better futures for ourselves if we study history. There's so many lessons there, you know, so many things that I think so many mistakes we wouldn't be making if we revisited our past and reviewed our strategies and so for me it was just very important to document that but even at the time I wasn't I don't even, I'd read an article or so about the Igbo women's revolts but I wasn't um, super I, I wouldn't say I was the level I am with it now I mean I'm doing a PhD on, on the Igbo women's revolt now um, I wouldn't say that I, I knew about the Igbo Women's Revolt and the way I know about it now, but I was curious. And for me, curiosity does not kill the cat. It makes the cat stronger. So being able to... Um, oh, that was so cringe. Ew! I was... No, no, you were... I was, I was feeling it. Keep going now. Keep going. Keep going. That was a bar. Let's... let's. <laughs> I just, I just finished listening to that album. Um, oh, for real? Yeah, we might get, yes, to, we might get to that at the end. 
Oh, I want to wow. hear your opinions on that. Ooh, ah, my opinions. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, I I feel like I've gained more lives from being curious than lost, and so I think that just following my curiosity was really what led me to um, creating that play, and knowing that um, I am a I it's my duty and it's my responsibility to share the truth and to allow people to witness the truth through art i think that i've always been a big believer in um, using art as a vehicle for social transformation and social change i just let my art speak for for me i don't i think before i mean i'm not saying that one shouldn't you know do all the things they need to do to get the word out there because i think um the revolution isn't just about storytelling there are other things that um, are required for revolution or for change or for justice but I see myself um, as a storyteller and using my own storytelling as a vehicle for that and change to occur and I think that's like it's a very noble pursuit honestly um, so with this being your first play you said it was messy so I want you to expand yeah. upon that like what were the elements looking back on it that you think made it quote-unquote messy um i think i was extremely ambitious which isn't a bad thing but trying to do too much so i i literally tried to explore three big issues in a 30-minute production so the environment's revolt fgm child marriage and i don't think that was necessary i think i should have just focused on one aspect and zoomed into that it could have been three plays and i ended up doing three plays in one which i thought was a bit too much um although I, I do know that for people they learned a lot in a short time which was great but yeah and messy in terms of even just the rehearsal process i see messiness as a beautiful thing though i think messiness is great because when you as a child like when you're scribbling and doodling it's very messy but it's you know it's a, a burst of creative expression um and so even the process like i remember i would watch videos of the Bassa dance or of some of my favorite choreographers and then I told one of my friends um to help teach people to dance and like the dancing the rehearsal process for the dance was so messy because none of the cast were dancers <laughs> so essentially like the cast were my friends nobody was an actor nobody had acted or maybe one or two people had acted before but it was all very much you know secondary school acting so messy in terms of um we weren't professional actors, but then also the great thing about messiness, and I, I re- the reason why I love messiness is that it's so um, associated with or associated with playfulness and improvisation, which is something that I draw a lot from. So a lot of my performances and plays um, are heavily reliant on improvisation, which basically means vibe. So yes you plan some things but a lot of times you rely on spontaneity and i think the reason why i love that so much is because a lot of my life is planned so writing is a good way for me to explore um that spontaneous side of myself that maybe i don't get to do a lot of uh, performing or, or you know any other kind of art and so um i remember i told the actors because i remember when the actors saw the script the first time they were like oh Lenore, but we don't have many lines and i'm like oh no no, no that's okay like it's deliberate because i want you to um, explore how anger might seem like in this situation, but don't you don't need to have lines for that. Just 
just flow just go with whatever feels natural to you and i remember um on the day of the play someone came up to me and said oh my god i really like when this particular actor said this line and then how do you think of it and i'm like that's not my line that was his line it was just so bad <laughs> so yeah i'm just a big believer in improvisation and i think um if you look at i guess hip-hop or rap like freestyle culture is based a lot of improvisation a jazz artist would use improvisation as well even any freestyle artist i mean just not just rap or hip-hop like any kind of genre like they use improvisation through freestyle or through um join on the audience members for um responses and you know using call and response as well so yeah those two things um are recurring in my own work so going from that and everything that you sort of learned from that first experience, how did that then inform your next play, An Evening with Verse Writer? Um, first of all, I learned that I can basically um, push the boundary of storytelling. So nobody can tell me that I can't do something just because it's not done in this way. And so I remember with the play, even with Verse Writer, people would ask me, is this a play? Is it a poetry performance? Is it a music concept with poetry? And I love the fact that it was very hard for people to describe what it was because it was essentially a product of messiness and playfulness. Um, and I was just talking about my own childhood throughout the play and my journey of coming to writing, essentially. Um, and I think the first play taught me the importance of just um, being confident and being brave enough to own my decisions. So for instance, um, in the first play, like I said earlier, a lot of the actors um, didn't actually have lines. I just said to them, just flow. And so with even with Verse Writer, there was a time during the performance where um, I forgot my line. And because I didn't want the audience to know I forgot my line, I blamed it on the on a band member so i said french i say ah koye like you missed this you missed this um particular point like you should have come in earlier and then in that moment koye flowed with me and he was like oh i'm so sorry lana but you did this like it was it was very weird because we're essentially acting but the act but the um audience members didn't know that that was unplanned they thought it was part of the script so then afterwards, people were like, oh my God, Lani, I love that they where you guys kind of broke the fourth wall. You essentially exposed us to your rehearsal room whilst being in a, on a, in a performance you know, space. And then in that moment, I was like, okay, wow, this improvisation thing is definitely working. I just need to find a way to develop it, you know? And then when I then had the second version of Even Invest Writer, I then incorporated that into the script. So I, I just believe a lot in iterate, 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 make the mistakes, um, flow, be playful and then find ways that you can then um implement what worked and then you know discard what didn't work um and that essentially just became i guess my trademark like people would say to me like lanary i love the use of call and response i love your use of improvisation meanwhile these things were unplanned at first it was just a product of um being okay with messiness essentially and being um being accepting of childlike you know just being childlike and being playful like i said to people that um fear is such an adult emotion whereas childlike faith is what we need because when you're a child and you fall let's say you're riding a bike um it's very 
easy for you to get back up but that's just because you don't think of pain for instance as something to fear whereas when you're an, an adult because you're socialized to be more conscious of, of fear or conscious of yourself in a moment where let's say you make a mistake with the performance you're thinking oh man let me just apologize to the crowd meanwhile a child wouldn't even just apologize they just continue so i just try my best to be as childlike as possible and i think I mean, there's language for that now with words like improvisation, call and response, playfulness. But really, at the time, I was just being myself and, and trying to be as real as I could. I really love that you have like those core tenets that you've tried to build upon because in actually seeing the play and being a member of the audience, it was really fun for me to, I guess, get pulled into your world um, it's very interactive. Like you said, you have to call and response. The fourth wall does get broken. And I remember thinking this is unlike any type of play experience that I've been for. And I just love that you really had those core tenets of like the playfulness and just building upon, I guess, the same foundations that you had in your childhood and bringing that like childlike energy towards the production and it really does come across so that's that's just amazing to to hear um and i guess how did it feel to be an award-winning playwright after um you got the the shoot festival development award and you can give a little more background for the audience that might not be aware yeah um so even with verse writer my first performance was in 20 2018 i got um this opportunity to perform in the Tristan Bates Theatre um, as part of a um, program called Black Dress, which was essentially a program that supported Black actresses. Ironically, I was called an actress, even though I didn't think I was an actress. But um, the play then got developed into a production called An Even with Best Writer um, of the same name. And I won an award called the Street Festival Artist Development Award, which basically gave me mentorship, um, a thousand pounds as well in cash support, and being paid for my um, work felt so good. I remember the next day, no joke, I went to the Apple store and I got myself a Mac. <laughs> I was like, yes. No, nah, that's... <laughs> You know that meme of Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness where he's like, <laughs> with his hands We're like walking down the street, pump, yes. pump, uh, pumping his fists. <laughs> yes, that's what I was like, yes. <laughs> God has delivered me from windows. <laughs> Don't um, kill me. But I was so happy. Um, and I spent literally spent all that money in just that day. But it was worth it because um, just being able to, I guess, call something mine. I think a lot of times, and I was talking to this with a friend, um, that it's very easy for artists to constantly be, um, to become slaves, essentially. You don't own anything. Like, it goes back to that conversation about with artists, where do you own your masters, for instance? And obviously, like, it's not as black and white because people need to have money to eat. Um, but I think for me, ownership at the, at the time looked like being able to see something physical and I can say venerate you earned this because you worked you know hard for this and because you were brave enough to use your gift to create something out of nothing and I was just so happy um, and then I also got support in terms of mentorship so um, I was supported by these two wonderful um, 
producers of the festival and they essentially allowed they're not allowed they um met with me to apply for our council funding which is a big organization in the uk where the government gives you money to create projects up to as large some people get as large as a million pounds you know so a lot of theaters they get supported by that and for my first even with first right so not first my third even with first writer which was shina the work art center i got a grant and that grant honestly changed my life because i'd never seen that much money in my account before and but also i could pay people finally like i i was so happy because a lot of people that had worked with me were working with me um just because of love it was really just the label of love whereas now it was nice to be able to say to a musician okay i actually have money or to develop my craft and be able to like hire the best like set designer um who i you know was also my friend at the time jade adami and so like being able to work with like even a fashion designer queer designer who found him with my friend adese on uk who like did the postcards um and also you shown for me with like giving me marketing advice even before bridge existed so like just being able to um i guess honor the people that have just supported me um was just such a, a great feeling and um yeah so but then a lot of people forget and this is something that i remember um tutu who was at the play he asked me and i can never forget this because we put it in the documentary which we made about the play he said to me lenary how many years or rather how long did it take you to create this and i said i said to him i remember the the uh, moment so vividly i said it took me like six months and i'm like mm, actually no it took me like seven years because in 2011 when i was in the ict room typing um you know my wordpress blog post before they will say, oh, the gen is going off in school. Please leave for the school bus, blah, blah, blah. I was, you know, I didn't know about the big picture. I didn't know that even reverse rights that was going to exist seven, eight years later. And so it just goes to show you that as long as you plant that seed, at least for my own, in my own opinion, as long as you plant that seed, you water it. Um, for, in my own case, God bless the seed as well. And friends were so kind to me and people were so kind to me i had divine helpers um i was able to see that seed become something that i could you know eat from in the form of fruits and enjoy the fruits of my labor um so yeah it was a fantastic feeling and i was only i was 19 no i was 18 at the time when i had that play where 300 people came for my play bought tickets for my show that's another thing that made me so proud and again like i said when i shared the story of feeling that pride um, in 20, uh, was it 18 or 17? 18, I think, where I had my first play, You Did Not Break Us. I also felt a similar sense of pride with even my first writer um, when I had it in 2019. Yeah, I think there's always that like beautiful satisfaction, first of all, when the project is just done, but then to have that additional bonus of like creative validation and also monetary reward, because I think for any artist that feeling of getting money for your work is like unmatched because it's it just it's really crazy but i think it's beautiful that all these different culminations of your work have served as like these really beautiful milestones along your journey 
and seeing how everything kind of just like ties in together from literally the seeds that your mom was planting as a kid to your creative career really expanding i think it's just amazing to see like the lines and how it's all kind of grown and blossomed um and i know Honestly. you um sorry did you want to keep going Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, honestly, like, I like how you brought it back to my mom because he's essentially the starting point of the story. Well, God is, but my mom was the um, catalyst to all of this. Yeah, and I think that's why I kind of wanted to start with her because I knew she was an important figure, but even just seeing, like, how central she really has been in everything from the beginning is... It's pretty amazing. So we thank God for like great parents that are really out to, to nurture the abilities of their children. Um, yeah, same, man. Shout out to great parents. You know something I was telling someone? Um, it's sort of funny how... Well, it's not funny because it's actually quite sad, but a lot of people think about... A lot of people don't realize that their destiny killers were actually in their household. They were sleeping with them. They were living with them and until one's eyes open and you're able to make that brave decision again like i know that it's not as black and white as we think um you can literally end up cohabiting or being mentored by the same person that's trying to kill your destiny because being able to take that step of of faith or that leap of faith rather is is not easy but it's super worth it because at the end of the day like the parent our parents were also products of their own generation so they would never understand, or some people would never understand, some parents would never understand why um, someone should pursue a career like writing. I remember I had a friend who was telling me that um, she wanted to be a full-time writer, but then her parents were telling her, go and finish law school. But she knew deep down that she was not going to practice law. So why should she finish law school was her justification. And her parents were saying that, well, you want to widen your options in the future. But then... I always think about how a lot of times you think that you're widening your options by being safe, but safety does not actually lead to any more reward. What it does is it tricks your mind into thinking that um, for the time being, you will be fine. And yes, you'll be fine for the time being, but I always say to myself, like, at what cost? Is it at the cost of my future? Is it at the cost of my glorious destiny? So it's very important for us to really, like, think about what we want and maybe look into our childhood to figure out the clues and um, our giftings if we can't even find our gifts at the moment and um, I hope that people are brave enough to then tell their parents or even anybody else that could be a destiny killer that um, I actually need to take this leap of faith and and pursue that um, and I'm very much aware that I'm saying this knowing that again so many other factors finances etc and that's probably the, most, the biggest one that could inhibit that but I do think that when the time is right um, being brave enough to do that would always fail. I, I fully agree. I think because, at least for me, creative expression was something that I just needed to do from even a place of, like, mental health. And it was, like, the only way I could really just deal with certain things that are happening in my life. And I feel like that's definitely a common theme for quite a few people. And like you said, it can be hard when the person that doesn't want you to succeed or doesn't believe in you is literally like in your house or a family member or someone super close to you um but it does come exactly. down i think to like taking that leap of faith 
Also now with like the internet, it's just a lot easier to find ways to express yourself. Um, the WordPress era was so influential for a lot of people on the writing side. The SoundCloud era was so influential for people on the music side. Tumblr was so influential for like designers and people that practice archiving and all these different spaces gave people avenues to express themselves even sometimes without having to like get family members or people that just don't believe in you involved and just give you time and space to develop and hone your craft. So I think if there's anyone listening that is feeling like, oh, I do want to take a creative leap, but, you know, people might say this or people might um, look at me this way. If it's something that you really want to do and you feel that calling and it's just like speaking to you, take that leap and honestly just deal with whatever happens later. But the -hmm. people that really do believe in you and that you kind of need, they will gravitate to you based on you just sort of putting yourself out there and sharing your work. Honestly, they would. And I really like the comment you mentioned about SoundCloud, Tumblr, and WordPress. Like, I I think because I'm a writer, and I also listen to a lot of music on SoundCloud, and also did, you know, observe a lot of Tumblr things. I wasn't really on Tumblr, but I had friends who were. Um, I was sort of like being, a, I decided in those three spaces, but then I never thought about it as a trio. I'd always just looked at WordPress. But you saying this now, I'm like, oh my goodness yes like there was just something so wholesome about it at the time and i know it's very easy to romanticize the past but i really genuinely feel like maybe because with wordpress for instance there was a sense of community and i think with instagram now a lot of times we're doing things for validation or it doesn't feel super genuine whereas then it just felt like people were doing it based off i just want to express myself um yeah and I think the slowness of it. Why do you think? Why do you think those times were so good? I mean, I won't say those times because again, it's like romanticizing the past, but maybe the product itself. So Tumblr, SoundCloud, WordPress. What do you think is so different about that compared to Instagram, Twitter, um, TikTok, whatever? I think genuinely it was a pure time. Um, I think with like you said, Instagram, for example, posting on Instagram is all about just like expanding your reach and trying to get heard above the noise so it doesn't even i don't think there's any kind of like joy sort of in posting to instagram because it's almost a battle after you've posted to sort of get people to engage with your work but back then our attention spans were not as short um there was a more genuine sense of community um even even the platforms we posted on so i would post things on twitter and it didn't feel like twitter was always moving a million miles per hour the way it is now and it didn't feel like there were just things that were kind of sweep your work away like if you posted something for your followers in your community they would definitely see it and i also feel like it was just a time where people were still finding themselves um personally and creatively and I think other people, you could recognize that in one another. And that sort of made an environment where it was more about how can we support and help each other rather than it being a competition of, oh, I'm the best writer or, you know, I'm the best poet. My short stories are the best, that type of thing. It was more just an organic, this is who I am. This is my work. 
and I would like to share it with you. And that was like the the leading sentiment at the time. At least like that's how I see it. That's a great analysis. And I also think maybe also the slowness aspect of it, which coupled the organic nature, um, then allowed people to really process things, you know, and be reflective and not feel like they're pleasing, they're doing it for people pleasing or for profit. It felt very much like I'm just trying to share my work uh, with people that I care about. Um, yeah, so that that is a good point. I'll never be very interested to read an article on or me talking about canals. So I guess you be sharing that information. No, no, I feel you though. Autism. We kind of still need to dive a deeper into like these older times that served as the foundation for a lot of the creative things we're seeing now. Um, yeah. Because I never want to like diminish the importance of those eras to so many people's different creative journeys now. Honestly, there was such transformative periods for a lot of people. I still look at SoundClouds or the comments. You know how they have timestamps? Um, I love that they did that because sometimes I look back at a song and I'm like, oh my goodness, so at 1 minute 39, I thought this was fire. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. I actually do love it because <laughs> especially yeah. if you have like a favorite part in a song and you can see other people's comments and yeah. Exactly. Oh, what the time? What the time? So I briefly want to touch on your documentary, and that's because um, you're someone that has definitely understood the importance of archiving, but also the importance of archiving out of traditional social media platforms. So for a lot of people now, Instagram is like a photo journal. Uh, Twitter is like a running diary, but you're someone I know that has always, well, let me not say always, but definitely in recent years, let me say like the past two, three years especially, has been speaking about the importance of archiving for self and creating um, creating like platforms outside of social media and also just taking time away from social media to sort of spend time with yourself and with your work. So... I want to touch upon the documentary and just when did you know that you wanted to make it and what was your mindset as you were in that whole process of building out the documentary based on your own play? Hmm. Um, so I definitely knew I wanted to make this firstly because there were so many of my friends that couldn't make the play and I wanted to share with them. Um, so I, I knew that I was going to document it. The film idea, so to, to make it into an actual documentary where you edit snippets from rehearsals and um, performance footage and interviews with audience members, it came because I just felt like God told me to just do it. And it was such a, um, it was an instruction that I had to obey. And I'm glad I obeyed because during the pandemic, um, there was a desire to, I guess, watch art or rather experience art um, that was not, you know, more con- was not the most conventional essentially. Because you know, at some point you get tired of Netflix and all of that. And um, I remember before the pandemic, I reached out to a video editor who was in my uni. His name is Kofi, and I said to him, I was like, "We're going to make a film together, and it's going to be about my process of even reverse rights. And I really, really want you to edit this." 
And I remember, I'm sure he looked so confused because he's like, I literally just met you today. What do you mean working in a film together? But the thing about me is like, as soon as God tells me to reach out to somebody or to like do something, I don't waste time. And a year later, the film was out. And so um, I'm really glad that, it, you know, it was possible. But it happened as a result of, I guess, the desire for me to document myself as, to document myself and for people to know that like, this existed um and i'm really really into legacy like the idea of legacy really um excites me because i always think about how um especially as a black woman it's very easy for your work your name your contributions to be raised it's super easy people have collective amnesia suddenly when you're a black woman like oh my god she really do this is this really her like no matter how amazing you are and i refuse to be raised I honestly refuse to be raised. And so I said to myself, how can I insert myself into people's collective imaginations? How can I um, essentially be remembered? How is it possible that my work would be um, remembered as great work? And film is a good way to do it because it transcends time and space. Um, and that's basically where, where the idea came up. Alongside watching Beyonce's Homecoming documentary, that was possibly one of the most um, influential films I have ever witnessed, or I mean, it's a concert film, but um, just seeing her process and seeing how human she was, well, both human and superhuman, um, she was really, really just impressed me because I was just being able to, I was able to see how somebody was as amazing as her, also had their own weaknesses, but could also create something so wonderful. And the style of the documentary was essentially what I drew inspiration from. Um, and I've always wanted to make a documentary. I, I love documentaries. I love I love watching about people's lives. When I was younger, I wasn't really allowed to watch, um, you know, the channel E. Yeah. Like, oh, yes, I wasn't allowed to watch it. However, I could watch the biographies. <laughs> so oh, the true Hollywood story? Like, Yes, ah, I love this. I'm like, Whitney, you really did that. <laughs> <laughs> just like, wow, it was, I just love them so much. I've always loved biographies. Maybe because I just like hearing about people's journeys. Um, and I wanted it to be that a few years from now, I could look back and be like, oh, wow, Lanary, this was your journey. This is what you went through. This is what you did. Um, so that's basically how the um, documentary, how it came about. And um, it was just, again, just because I didn't want people to forget what had happened because it's so easy to forget things, um, especially because of how quick the internet is nowadays. But when you put something out, especially you do it through a form like film that um, allows for cultural preservation and, um, you know, is the great way to reinscribe yourself into people's collective imaginations, um, it allows you to then at least not be forgotten as, as quickly um, or to not be forgotten at all if that's even possible no definitely I, I think that's very important um, and it's even part of the reason like this podcast exists where you want to give people a space to sort of recount their journeys and just have it cemented somewhere because like you said we have such short memory spans and especially when it does come to black women it's very easy for their contributions to movements and to culture and to so many things just to get erased and other people just scoop up the credit and I was very impressed watching your documentary because you took 
that initiative and took the the creating of your own narrative into your own hands and of course who's going to know the source matter better than you as well so it was just really great to watch and get that behind the scenes look and as well get um hear from the audience members that uh experience it and get like their first-hand perspectives i think um beyonce's homecoming video was very influential for a lot of people i remember watching it and just being like wow it's like you said human and superhuman where you see her in her weakest moments but then that makes the final product that much better and that much more impressive and i remember coming away from that thinking like beyonce is one of the greatest athletes on this planet to really do everything that went into that and again i, I come away from your documentary thinking like wow Lanaria is a very brilliant and like thoughtful intentional mind and i already know these things but it's still great to see um see like you said on film because it's something that is immortalized it's always going to exist it's something that you always have to share and i'm really glad that you did take that step thank you so much for saying that and it was also lovely like to be able to have people like you around to support that vision because i remember vividly sharing that idea with you and you just being super supportive of it um so the friends that you you have the people around you as an artist it really, really matters, you know, surrounding yourself with people that speak life into your work instead of drain, drain you. It's, it's just crucial. Um, and I, I'm just blessed to have people like you who have constantly um, sewn into my work through time, energy, um, support, feedback. Um, but yeah, but Beyonce being an athlete, that was such a funny, but true comment. My goodness, she's, she's actually amazing. And heels as well. And heels, yeah, like, f dancing for two hours and singing simultaneously, multiple outfit changes, she doesn't miss a note, she doesn't miss a step, yes. she doesn't sweat, like, I don't know, Honestly, she's just different. She's put in her 10,000, 10,000 hours, man, it's not more, probably uh, more, million it's probably hours. like, yeah, I don't even know what she's put in now, it might be like 50k, like, yes. she's on another level. Honestly, but I think that's one thing about consistency, as long as you keep honoring your gift. It would you would get you get the results. Um, I always say that even if you're consistently bad at something, at least you get fame. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a good way of looking at it. Honestly, it's true. It's true. Yeah, and then from from that you can then you know no, I'm not saying that I'm encouraging low quality work. I don't believe in that either. Please, but um, I think what I'm just trying to say is that consistency you know baby steps honestly like it pays off in the end um because i've been doing this since i was eight and sometimes i'm like oh my goodness wow but then other times i realize that looking at other people's journeys um that's also around the same time where maybe they first got exposed to their art form the art form they then do or um they got a glimpse of what life could look like maybe in their formative years and then but courageous enough to pursue that dream. Um, yeah, I really, really believe there's so many clues in our childhood. Yeah, the foundation is really there. It's just sort of taking that time to go back and look and then still being able to now draw the connections from, oh, this happened to me when I was four or five and that's why I'm like this in my 20s. And it's... 
I think it's necessary, but it's also scary for people because you have, it's just about learning about yourself and learning new things about yourself, especially when you're already at a stage where you feel like you know yourself pretty well is kind of scary for people. But the clues are always there. The clues are always there. I like that. I like that comment you just said. Like, this, what is scary is knowing new things about yourself or things that you already knew, but maybe you didn't, you didn't honor because of various reasons. And I think that's what why our twenties are so difficult because everything that you've known is first of all being questioned, whilst you're trying to also, go, it's essentially like you're trying to both be present whilst going to the past and creating a good future for yourself. That's basically our 20s. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a shit show. And it's, hey, honestly, <laughs> like, it's, yeah, literally, have you seen the film Everything Everywhere All at Once? No, I, I kept saying I was going to and I just never went to, to actually see it. I know I do. See it. it is, you would love it. It's the kind of film that can make you write an, another um, blog post. <laughs> oh, wow, Okay. Okay, I always love those types of things. Anything that makes me feel like I want to write after, I love it. So I need to check it yeah, out. Yeah, I really recommend everyone see it. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Amazing. So there's one last thing that I wanted us to touch on. Um, it's what I believe to be another kind of foundational pillar of your practice. And that's the... I want to say educational aspect as a general umbrella, but it's deeper because you have organized panel talks, you have organized and facilitated um, workshops, you have given talks, you share resources, um, you have a newsletter. Um, I know you have been a mentee, but I'm sure you've also been an unofficial mentor to a lot of artists. And I wanted to ask where that drive to to just be open and really share as much knowledge as you can comes from. Wow. Um, thank you for that. I think I think because I just can't keep a secret to myself. <laughs> Whenever I find something <laughs> I'm like, I need to share it. So even if I when I read a newsletter, because I love reading newsletters, but I really like I just send to my friends. If I see something, an opportunity, I think would be good for somebody, I just send it. So I think it's just, maybe it's part of my nature of like sharing and caring. Um, and yeah, like, or rather knowing that sharing is caring. Um, I just, I am a big believer in just sharing information. Like, why are you hiding something? And also, I think from a young age as well, I have been super passionate about recovering people's gifts. Um, one thing I can, again never sit down for is if i see someone that's good at something and they're just not using their gift or they're struggling to figure out a way to use it i can spend hours having a conversation with them on okay their strategies and i love talking to people about recovering their gifts and i think it's because i think when you're able to master your gift you are essentially walking in your your purpose but also you get a taste of god's goodness because you're you know using the gift that he's blessed you with and i think for me um i just always want to edify and nurture people in any way i can and resources resource sharing is a good way to do that and with the teaching aspect um i mean i know that when i was younger 
I would sometimes teach in like Sunday school and in in class. Um, I would I was like the nerd, but I was also the cool nerd. You know, so like I've always been a big believer in teaching in a very fun way. I think because I also get bored very easily. So when teachers were boring, I would be daydreaming and dozing off slightly and just doodling. And so I promised myself that I was never going to be a boring teacher or boring educator. So even when I have my workshops, I include memes in my presentations. I crack my dry jokes <laughs> and have that awkward silence. I'm like, ah, just laugh. Ah. And then they laugh. <laughs> and so I'm just myself. I think that's something that I promised myself that I was going to always be. Not um, diluting my authenticity, no matter the um, space I would walk in. I remember when I was on Twitter like a few years ago, someone came up to me and they were like, oh my God, Anuri, like you tweet so much. Like, why are you using, using Twitter as a diary? And I don't think what the person was saying was entirely um, uh, false because. I actually was using Twitter a lot. Like, it was so bad. Like, I would just tweet about every single moment. But that's because that's how Twitter was then. Like, we always tweet about what we're going through. Um, and I do have much more healthier boundaries with it now. But there are times where I still tweet a lot. And I would still get that observation through a comment of, oh, Lana, you tweet quite a lot. But then this time it wouldn't be um, a comment to say, a comment of critique would be. But I really, really feel like you're wise or I feel like I learned a lot from this and I think that's just because I realized that um, I I have so much to say and, and so much to offer the world and if I don't speak up who would and there's only going to be one Lanaria during me in the whole entire world possibly 10 Lanaria's marks um, except people start to copy my name which will probably happen but okay um, <laughs> Honestly, but I I just think that it's just super important to just be true to yourself, and I mean that authenticity always pays off. So I guess with with that in mind, um, I also want other people to tap into their own the gifts that God has given them and knowledge sharing, knowledge producing, knowledge creating, knowledge disseminating. Those are all um, activities that support that desire of mine for people to be um walking in their purpose and be aligned with you know god's plans for their own lives i love it i think that it that explains a lot to me because you do lead from a place of you know love and a genuine sense of how can i help these people so i am not surprised by your answer to that question but i really just love to to have you lay it out um, and it's it's been great to see in terms of how many artists you've definitely helped. Um, you're someone that I know I could even send someone to you if they need help. So uh, I just appreciate all that you've been able to share with people um, over the years. Oh, hearing this from the artist helper, show for me <laughs> the plug. <laughs> that is such an honor. <laughs> Please don't gas me. <laughs> Um, so before we wrap up, I just want to ask, so what are you working on now? What's in store? What can we expect? So it's interesting that you say this because I feel like I'm in a resting period at the moment, but resting, not by choice. 
resting because I'm waiting for people to say yes to things that I've, you know, I've pitched or applied to. So at the moment, I'm just working on my PhD. Um, and my PhD is a novel. So I'm working on a novel. Um, but yeah, but I'm, I guess I'm waiting on a lot of things. So waiting on my London show for my play, because I had a play in April in, um, in the UK. And interesting, that play was um, a much more professional version of the play I had in 2017 and more focused, still ambitious, but more focused in its scope and just a brilliant play that people really were kind enough to support me with. Um, but I guess I'm waiting for that to be transferred to London, even to go to Lagos as well. I'd love for it to be in Lagos. Um, I'm also waiting on my poetry pamphlets. I, I've written a pamphlet, um, I wrote this last year, but waiting on a publisher to just basically say yes to me. But if they don't say yes, I'll publish it myself. But I'm, I want to be self I don't want to be self-published for the second time. But if I have to be, that's what God says, then I'll do it. And then I'm also working on an album, which, you know, should be out at least the next year or so, probably the next year. Um, but those are the things I'm, I'm waiting and working on um, whilst, I guess, trying to rest because rest is super important. So, I mean, it's season, I hear the season is supposed to be shared, that word, season, season, season. But I That's feel like... a good term still. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great word. There's a season and timing for everything, I guess, in this world. But I guess I'm in a season where it's very frustrating. I'm seeing this in a very pleasant way, but I literally just put out my heart a few days ago to my friend talking about how I feel like God is trying to teach me patience and I'm struggling with it because this is the first time in a long time where I have everything. Like, I have everything. I've done everything. I've done the work. It's just I'm having to wait on people to say yes to me. And it's so frustrating because I haven't been in this position in a long time. So I'm just trying to be patient and just trust God and trust that eventually when the timing is right, all things will come together. And something my friend told me this morning really comforted me. And he said to me that sometimes um, we don't get opportunities, not because the work isn't brilliant, but because the world isn't ready for the work. And sometimes God just puts it on puts the project on pause because if it was to come out now it wouldn't be ready so it's why like you know there's some artists where you say oh they were so ahead of their time or a footballer that you say ah if only they were there in the the season after maybe they would have scored more goals or you know your favorite artist you're thinking oh man they came out a bit too early or they came too late i don't want that to be my story and so i just have to just trust god and be still so i'm in a season of rest okay i mean you deserve the rest lord knows um, but yeah, I guess yeah. you have nothing too serious in the works, just a debut album, uh, a full play, <laughs> and another collection of poems. So, something like... Yes, something like, <laughs> you know, something like... <laughs> That's amazing, though, like, I'll be on the lookout for everything. I am hoping to... It would be amazing if you could do a play in Lagos. I would love love to be there for that. That would be, yeah. Yeah, I, that's my heart's desire. I think... Definitely after election election year, like for safety reasons and because the play has a lot of political themes and I just don't want any censorship. I need to be really sensitive with like 
when I, you know, share it. But Lagos is definitely going to see my play at some point. Like God's grace. Amen. Um, yeah. Amen to that. We need that. Even US, US man. <laughs> yeah, I'm t- come over here, like, bro. We're ready. Come. Yeah. Oh, no worries. That's also my heart's desire as well. Don't worry, New York. You're going to see me soon. LA. You know, my initials too are LA, so <laughs> there's no way we can't meet. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, no, it's fate. Now it has to happen. It has to happen. Yeah, it has to, it has to. Me and Issa Rae will be chilling. You know? uh, I'm claiming it for you. I see it for sure. Yeah, the podcast. Um, we you heard it too. Oh yeah, we didn't even touch on your podcast. Oh yes, yes. Oh wow. That's even another part of your your archiving and um, just the importance of sharing like Nigerian history. Yeah, it was a four-part audio series um, on Nigerian history. It's called Story Story Pod, produced by my production company called Lanaria Dermic Productions, LAP, alongside Lupify Media. Um, and it was just such a great process. We basically traveled to um, various historical events from the Festac 77, which was, you know, the Black Festival that happened in Nigeria, in Lagos. Um, to the Egba Women's Revolt story, to the Ogoni Nine story, to the story of Queen Amina. And we produced a four-part audio drama that, you know, documented what happened through immersive soundscapes, music, and storytelling. And the podcast was so well-received. It honestly exceeded my expectations. Um, it was number one on Apple Podcasts in Nigeria, and I'm not even in Nigeria, so... That was just such a great moment for me because it just showed me how powerful um, collaboration is because this was a highly collaborative project, but also how amazing and supportive people are, uh, even beyond your immediate environment. Definitely. And I think there's a hunger from Nigerians for more historical Nigerian content and just Nigerian-focused content in general. Um, To anyone listening, please check out Story Story Pod. It's extremely informative but a very fun listen um Lanaria and her team uh, did an amazing job putting it together I was very happy to see that it touched number one for um history podcast in Nigeria because I mean that just gives me more hope for future products and shows that things like this are viable and that people want to hear more about our past and our culture so I really commend you as well for taking that initiative and putting that podcast out because even now I'm seeing more and more um, historical based like Nigerian podcasts coming out so you were definitely on the right path with that thank you so much that means a lot to me and yeah hopefully there will be more in fact there will be more story story um, as well and hopefully more events we're coming soon Um, but just, just you know yeah, we're coming soon at the right time. <laughs> no, we'll be ready. Um, I know you're kind of on social media hiatus, but if people want to find you or find your work, where can they look? Yeah, so I'm back now. Um, and they can look. So Twitter is Lanary underscore Instagram is also Lanary underscore My newsletter is tinyletter.com slash Lanary 
um yeah so that's where you can find me instagram twitter yeah that's it for me and then i have a youtube channel where i post the videos but if you follow my twitter instagram and you click the link in my bio you would see any of the things that um we talked about today in the bio yeah so go and check everything out um her work is amazing from the start to now and there's more greatness to come um thank you so much larry for joining me this has been a really wonderful conversation always love getting the time to speak to you and i'm really grateful that you decided to to join me on this podcast and just share some more about yourself and give people more insight into the brilliance that you possess Thank you so much for your kind words and for just being so supportive of my journey. And yeah, I'm really happy that I was able to share. This was super reflective for me. And I really hope that, um, you know, this goes far because you're also documenting people's journey, which is such a great thing to do and such a necessary thing to do as well. So thank you for your own brilliance as well. No, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So. Thank you all for listening, um, and we'll be back soon.